things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to wrap up John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible in front of you, and if you don't, I invite you to grab a Bible and and open it up to John chapter 6 this morning. This chapter we're about to finish has has been a big one. Uh, It's 71 chapters by the, or 71 verses by the end of this morning. Uh, But beyond that, there's a lot of major sections and topics and themes that come up. And we've, we've covered it in three weeks, but it, it wouldn't be too hard to have done it in maybe five or six weeks. Here's, here's where we've come. Some of the things that we have seen in these past three weeks in this chapter, in chapter six. It opened up with, with Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water, the sea being no problem for him to cross. And this, we said, uh, revealed Jesus as the true and better Moses. He he was taking the Old Testament commitments and and covenants and all the things Moses had done and said, Moses pointed to me. Last week, we looked at Jesus' first I am statement, that he was saying, I am the bread of life. We see Jesus calling out the crowd who were just following him, just using him for their next meal. Well, he fed us over here, so let's go with him and maybe he'll feed us again. And this week, we'll see that people were offended or, or scandalized, again, by, by Jesus' words and then leaving Jesus. And also this week, we'll see Peter's declaration that, that Jesus is the Holy One from God. And, and where else would we go to find the words of life? This chapter is, is kind of a, a massive shift in the gospel, and it's going to wrap, us, wrap up with us actually staring right towards the cross. And I mentioned that there was a lot here and that we've taken three weeks to cover it, but we could take, it, take five or six weeks to cover it because as I studied this week, I was reminded again that sometimes there is a bit of a, a danger in splitting up these larger sections of the Bible into smaller sections. Now, uh, practically, it, it, it's something we have to do to fit a message into a, an amount of time that we've got allotted for our time together. But the danger can come in, in looking at some of these verses, but maybe forgetting where we've come from for the last week, two weeks, three weeks, and longer. It might be easy for us to, to hone in and, and zero in on just our verses today, verses 60 to 71, and forget what happened in verses 1 to 15. So remember, maybe especially for this chapter, that everything's happening in, in just over a day. So one verse really moves into the next really quite quickly, and one message from one Sunday flows quickly into the next. And so I know I've recommended it before, but let me do it again. It would be good to carve out some time and, and sit down and, and read this gospel from start to finish, all in one sitting. Or jump on version or your preferred Bible app and listen to it. I, I think that you could listen to the whole gospel of John in about 20 to 25 minutes, which means you could probably read it in about the same amount of time, maybe a little bit longer. So remember... Last week, we looked at Jesus, really, his first I am statement was kind of the the core of last week's message, where he said that he is the bread of life, that that he is the true and better manna in the desert that God had provided to Israel hundreds, thousands of years before. And we said this of this bread. First, that that God provides the bread for the hungry. The the manna in the desert, the the bread provided for the feeding of the 5,000 were breads that satisfied physical hungers, yes, but God is providing Jesus as the bread of life to satisfy our spiritual hunger that, that every one of us has. We said that, that only God's bread can, 
give us life, give us a true life, real life, abundant life. And finally, we said that we actually have to eat that bread to live. Metaphor, of course. But we need to accept and internalize and do something with the truth about Jesus. Of course, you can find all of our past messages at trinitycanmore.com slash media. If you missed one or two, you can head back there and catch up. Last week's section wrapped up with a hard saying, as it's going to be called today, but Jesus said these things and in between verses about 53 and 56. He said to the crowd that was around him that had gathered looking for yet another meal, he said, listen, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. That probably turned a lot of people off right there. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and, and abides or remains in me and I will remain in him. He says that the living Father, that God sent me, he says that I am the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread that the fathers ate these back the, as they left Egypt. He's talking about the manna in the desert again. He's, he says, I'm not like that bread that they ate in the desert and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so it's in him having just said these words that we get to our text this morning. So let me read for us, starting at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, heard these things he just said, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Note that, that John writes for us that it was the disciples that said this thing. It wasn't the Jews who were already kind of opposing him, but it was, it was the ones who were already trying to follow him, who, are, who may have called themselves his followers or, or believers in him. See, for John in his gospel, the, the dividing line between in and out isn't race. It's not Jew versus not Jew. It's in versus out. It's, it's belief. It's not about race. These people who consider themselves Jesus' disciples, maybe, or his followers, they were starting to attach themselves to him as rabbi. They, a few verses earlier, had tried to take him by force and make him king. They said, this is hard. They said, Jesus, this, this teaching doesn't make sense to us. It seems to go against everything we grew up believing. It doesn't seem to even fit with what we've seen in the last little bit. Who can wrap their heads around this? How can anyone listen to this, let alone accept these words you're saying? Anyone else thinking the same thing? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you're in? Well, here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus' words aren't easy, but they're the words that bring life. Jesus' words, they aren't easy. They, they uproot and upend much of what we believe or even think. They challenge our own ideas of, of self-autonomy. They go against the things we want to believe about ourselves. They're, they're difficult. They're hard to understand. They're hard to apply. They're offensive. And they're even scandalous. But they, and, and they alone, bring life. Jesus knows what the disciples, what those who are following him are thinking, and he, he knows that they're grumbling, which that word grumbling should throw us back a little bit earlier in chapter 6, around verse 40, where the people grumbled and said, wait a minute, we know who this guy is. It should throw us back all the way to Israel in the desert, where the people grumbled in the desert against Moses, which resulted in God providing manna the first time. So Jesus asked them a, a simple question. Does this offend you? Does, does this cause you to stumble? 
The word for offend there is the word we get scandal from. So are you, are you scandalized by this? Clearly, they were offended. Clearly, they were scandalized even by this Jesus. In his new book, The Problem of Jesus, Mark Clark kind of takes on this scandal. And here's how he sets up his book in the early pages. I'm, I'm a little bit, little ways in, and it's great. I would recommend it, even though I have yet to finish the book. He says this, You may have grown up seeing Jesus on felt boards in Sunday school with perfect white teeth and luxuriant hair and smiling eyes. There are best-selling books that promote this picture of Jesus as, a, as an ancient hippie or a self-help guru. Like the founders of other religions that they say, maybe Muhammad or Abraham or Buddha, Jesus taught eternal principles such as the golden rule and showed us a better way to be human by his example. He's kind, he's fun, he's gentle, and he's safe. But Jesus was such a scandal in the ancient world and that scandal applies to our lives today. And as we'll see, if Jesus is who he says he is, Mark says it, we'll see in this book, but we'll see as we read the Gospel of John too. If Jesus is who he said he is, then the fate of everyone who ever lived and everyone who is alive today is not defined by what they think about God or politics or religion or success or parenting or self-actualization or whatever but by what they think of him. And that is a scandal indeed. But this type of scandal is different than the latest politician caught in adultery or a latest pastor stealing money from the coffers. It's a controversy that's worth us leaning into rather than leaning away from because it will bring life to you rather than steal life from you. See, the things that Jesus says and does, they are hard and they are scandalous even but they will bring us life. Now, why were the disciples offended? And we're pulling this from the verses directly head ahead of the passage that I kind of alluded to as we began. But here's a few suggestions. First, they were actually more interested in food. They followed Jesus hoping they would give him another meal. We talked about that last week where he said, you know, you're, you're following me for, me, for, for food, not for your spiritual hunger. They, they like the sign, not what the sign pointed to. They like the provision, but not necessarily the provider just yet. And that offended them. Second, uh, they were offended because Jesus was effectively telling them, listen, you are not in charge of your life. Who does this Jesus think he is telling us he's the bread of life? We, we know his parents. We know who he really is. His brothers and sisters live with us. How can he tell us he's come down from heaven and he is life? Jesus just told them that God's doing the work and your efforts don't amount to a whole lot without him. And Jesus is going to expand on this flesh and spirit dichotomy in just a few verses. They're also offended that Jesus was clearly, through these words, setting himself up as the true and better Moses. That he was saying, I am greater than the hero of your Jewish faith. And again, this whole bread metaphor was offensive. How could they eat flesh and drink blood? And Jesus says, you're offended by this? And look at verse 62. He says, this so far offends you. What are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
He's saying, you thought me saying I've come down from heaven, it was offensive. You say, let alone, how are you going to feel when you see the route I have to take to go back to ascend next to the Father? How are you going to feel when you see me stepping into my role as son of man, suffering servant, king of kings, and lord of lords? The idea that, that the Messiah would have to go through the cross would be even more offensive to their minds than the things that Jesus had already said. Later in our New Testaments, Paul says that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But here's the thing. How we respond to this offense, how we respond to this scandal is the difference between life and death. Jesus says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh isn't Jesus. He's moved away from the metaphor and he's talking about the things of the earthly realm versus the things of the heavenly realms, the spiritual realm here. And Jesus has talked several times already through the Gospel of John about the Spirit coming, and he's tying this discourse that he's having right now to back to the Old Testament, to the, to the prophets that these Jewish hearers would have known. Consider Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, where the prophet writes, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words came to me a joy and, the, and to the delight of my heart. The contrast that we read here between spirit and flesh is stark. Jesus is saying that, that the things of this world, including our passions and our desires, are actually of no help of bringing us into real life in the spirit. We need him. We need the spirit to do the work. Leslie Newbigin, who was a, a missionary and, and then a pastor, writes this. That which was born of flesh is flesh. The heart of man by itself will, will turn in upon itself so that its center is mistaken for the center of the universe. And it's quite capable of entertaining an infinite variety of images or ideas of God. But however lofty and spiritual these images that that heart turned in on itself may find, however spiritual those images may be, they are, in biblical language, flesh. They're of the world. All the ideas that the self-centered heart finds are, are of this world. All the meaning we think we conjure up for ourselves, all the, the purpose we, we look deep within us to find, all the identity we find from the things around us without looking upward, all the horizontal uh, relationships we have without that vertical relationship with God are just flesh. Jesus says the flesh is of no help at all. And then he offers us a better way. A better way than turning in on ourselves to find everything we need. He offers us life, Jesus does. And he offers us the spirit. And he can rightly say, the words that I'm speaking to you are spirit and life. Now, if Jesus' hearers had been tracking with him and had heard and rightly understood what he was talking about, then instead of rejecting him, as we saw earlier in chapter 6 and we're about to see in another couple of verses, instead of rejecting him, they would see him as the bread from heaven, as the one who was giving his flesh for the life of the world, the one who alone can provide eternal life. And they would receive him, they would believe him, and they would taste and see and taste and experience eternal life right now, and then also look forward to the promise that Jesus would raise them up on the last day. Verse 64, 
Jesus continues, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that, those, uh, that there were those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In all of this, Jesus knows that there will be some that won't believe. They won't set aside their selves, and they aren't willing to come under the authority of Jesus. They won't let the Spirit work in their lives. And Jesus knew right from the start that no matter how many times he said the words he was saying, no matter how many times he did the signs and miracles that he did, there would be some who just wouldn't turn from their own ways and follow him. We'll see this again in a couple of verses as well. But before we move past verse 65, I do want to just quickly address where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has granted him by the Father, or unless it is granted by the Father. See, one of the ways that, that we can read this is that somehow in eternity past, God had a checklist, and no matter what we do, if we're not on that list, it's too bad for us. We'll never come to Jesus. And I think many skeptics or people outside the faith or people who have left the faith might point to this statement here and say, how can God be just if he just decides by himself that I can't come in and, and, and it has nothing to do with me? Well, it's a great question and it's an important question. But with all of these things, we need to make sure that we look more broadly than just one or two verses in the Bible, the one or two verses in front of us, and, and make sure we're not building an, an entire understanding or theology that doesn't fit with the whole greater, grand narrative of the Bible. See, if we consider all of Scripture, then we find that God has a heart for the world, that, that all would come to him. Even in the book of John, we've seen this so far. Look at John 3.16. Maybe you know this one. For this is how God loved who? The world. Not a few. Not just the Jews. This is how God loved the world. That he gave his one and only son so that who? Everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the emphasis of the world. Everyone. That everyone has this opportunity this is the grand narrative of Scripture. We can track through this from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, that God was making a way for everyone who could, uh, everyone to know him. I heard this passage and this kind of conflict explained this way this week, and I, I thought it was helpful, so let me just give you a bit of an extended quote. Uh, one pastor writer says, I don't believe Jesus is saying these things in this context in John 6, 65, to primarily address the who is coming to Jesus. Instead, he's trying to address the how. He's trying to address the efficacy, the power, and the effectiveness of salvation that God draws, Jesus keeps. And we can get stuck and say, yeah, but what about all those people who aren't drawn? But let's just put it in this text. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, I am fully dependent on the Father to do the work of the Father, and I'll do the work that I am called to do. Again, we're going to continue to explore this idea because it is an important one of being drawn to Jesus and also having confidence in his work in, in the coming weeks as we head into Easter, but also as we soldier on through this gospel as well. But again, these, these are hard words. They reveal to us, again, that, that God is in control, that, that God is sovereign, God is ruler, which means we, you and I, 
we're not. And so to ask you, Jesus, a question, are you offended by this? And a bit of the follow-up question is, why? Why are you, are you offended by Jesus being in this position and us having this lower state, where, where God is ruler and we are not? Let me in, invite you to sort of explore that offense or that scandal this week and kind of dig to see what the root might be. Chances are, and, and I know this is true of me, that when I'm offended by the Bible, it's because I'm thinking far too highly of myself and too little or too lowly of Jesus. I think that I'm pretty good and Jesus is, well, something nice to add on. Let's keep reading. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? This crowd that gathered, this crowd that we saw uh, come to Jesus in the beginning of chapter 6, be fed, wake up and see that Jesus wasn't there, and their tummies started to grumble, so they went back after him. They tried to force him to be their king earlier in chapter 6. Their belief has been exposed. They were not willing to see this hard teaching through. They were not willing to give up rights to their own lives, and so they turn away. Jesus' pointed question that he asked, it hasn't helped them overcome the offense, but nor has Jesus heard their grumbling, seen how they've been offended and scandalized, and then softened his message. We should we shouldn't ever expect Jesus to change his tone just to pander to the crowds, to keep a big crowd around him. He didn't then, and we shouldn't expect that for us today either. His message is hard. His message offends our self-focused nature, and it does cost us something to follow him. And so we read that Jesus is left with the twelve. And this is the first time these close disciples have been singled out for us in John's gospel. And the question that he asks them is one that you and I, we all need to answer as well. In light of the hard saying, in light of the cost that Jesus is starting to lay out that it's going to cost to follow him, do you want to go away as well? I've often read this passage and kind of pictured a dejected Jesus maybe head hanging, feeling sorry for himself, that, that this once massive crowd has now dwindled down to what looks like maybe just 12. And now, insecure, Jesus looks at this ragtag bunch around him and kind of lays on the guilt trip to them, saying, surely you're not going to go too, right, and leave me all alone. But nothing could be farther from the truth in this moment. Jesus said in the, the verses right before, he knew people were going to leave. He knew that people were going to walk. And he'll say it again. He knows that someone's going to betray him. And so he looks at the 12. He knows what maybe they're wrestling with and thinking too. And he asks them this question more for their sake than for his. This is a bit of a test for them, as it is for us. And he looks at them and says, this is hard. Are you still in? See, Jesus is looking for them to articulate and, and form a response for themselves. It's not that he needs these 12 to, to build him back up again, to pump his tires a little bit so he can keep on going. And again, this is a great question for all of us. 
in a culture that is in so many ways walking further and further from biblical truth and biblical authority, we too need to answer the question, do you want to go away as well? Not because Jesus needs us to encourage him and say, listen, Jesus, with all that's going on, it's okay, I'm still here. But it's for us to be able to form and articulate that response for ourselves and say, no, no, this is why I'm here. Good old Peter jumps in in verse 68 and answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's answer here has two parts to it. First, he says, where else are we going to go, Jesus? Now, he may not, in fact, he probably didn't understand all the things that Jesus had just finished saying. We can be confident that he didn't understand it all. But he knew enough to catch in verse 63 and to, to know and to believe and to trust that the words of Jesus are spirit and in those words is life. Where else are we going to go? And the second part of his answer is that we, we believe Jesus, but we also know that you are the Holy One of God. Very often these, these two words, believe and know, are used as synonyms, but there's one really important distinction. We can read through the Gospels that Jesus is said to, to know God, but he's never said to believe God. See, the, the disciples, they're believing, but Jesus doesn't believe in God. He knows God, but doesn't believe in God. So in this case, to believe, as, as D.A. Carson writes, seems to have some, some overtones of dependence. And so this dependence comes from the creatures, redeemed creatures, but, but you, the, the one who is the creator can't be the one who believes. Right? So, so they're stepping into this, this place, Peter is, by this saying. We, we know you, we, we, we know and we believe these things, and, but we also are submitting ourselves to you in that. This belief has a submission piece attached to it. It's, it's recognizing that Jesus is other. It is agreeing with what he said, that, that he is from above. He's, he's more than, he's greater than you and I are. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus responds to them in verse 70. Didn't I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is an adversary. One of you is the devil. 71 says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he knew that one of the twelve, this one of the twelve, maybe a little bit pretentious, a little bit boasting in his answer as though he and the twelve are somehow better than all those who left and they're still there. But Jesus makes really clear once again that the twelve didn't choose him, he chose them. And it's right here, even in this first introduction to these disciples as the twelve, that Jesus right away says, It's interesting, in one of the other Gospels, right after this confession, Peter says, listen, we can't do this. We've got we to protect you, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, what? Satan. To Peter. John, Jesus is, is, is on a path. He's on a route. And he knows that there are adversaries around him in his 12. But here's where we stand with Jesus. He will never actually cast out any who are with him. 
He said, the Father will give them to me. I will keep them. We're going to see that keep coming and coming and coming. He will never cast out any who come to him. But neither will he cajole, persuade, or bribe anyone to remain. So, as we wrap up, Jesus is setting the bar high for his followers. They must accept that he's come from above. They must recognize that they can't save themselves. They must eat the bread of belief and let the words of Jesus sink down deep in their souls. Let me ask, how about you? Where are you at with this? Where are you in your belief of Jesus? Not just your knowledge. Because belief is is more than just knowing facts about him. As we said last Sunday as well, believing is staking your life on the fact that he is the only way to to really live. And the only way to life is to receive him. Believing is placing all of your hope on him to sustain you. Believing is a, a deep sense that you will die without him. It's placing all of our confidence in him as the one, the only one who can give you life and strength and a future. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this text. I thank you for your grace and compassion and patience with us. I think this is another passage where maybe it's really easy to say, well, if I was there, Jesus, I would be with the 12. I wouldn't walk away just because of a hard statement. But when I look at my life, when I look at my last days, my last weeks, I know that's probably not true. That I too... I'm selfish. I too look out for my own self-interests. I too maybe, maybe at times look for you just to kind of help me when I need your help and then I can go back and do my own thing. Forgive me for that. I pray, Jesus, that as we come towards a, an end of our time here together that the words of Peter, as impulsive as they may be, would ring through our minds this day and this week lord to whom will we go where else can we go your words are the words of eternal life of true meaning purpose and value and identity of of true satisfaction that you are the bread of life that satisfies our deepest needs and i pray that you would help us to wrestle with verse 69 that we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these words. May they uh, do it in us this week as you would have them, as you draw us to you and, and keep us with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Arnie is going to lead us in a closing song.